Well, good morning. We're, uh, we're wrapping up our, our four-week July series on uh, sort of a larger overview of, of the prophets or the so-called latter prophets, the, the writing prophets. We spent our first week together looking at the book of Isaiah, again from this aerial view with just one Sunday given to the whole of the book of Isaiah. Then we turned to Jeremiah, and then we, we turned our attention last week to Ezekiel, um, one of the stranger prophets. I mean, all the, all the prophets have a certain kind of strange quality about them, but Ezekiel is certainly um, up there with them. And today, we're, we're going to spend our last session together taking an aerial view of the minor prophets. And, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit, let me pray, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, it's tw- 12 books, so we're, we'll, we'll obviously be picking and choosing here uh, as we look into the minor prophets. But before we do that, um, let's, let's turn our attention to the Lord. Our Father, we stand before your word, I'm open, asking, O oh Father, by the power of your Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is you have to teach us from your law. Help us to yearn, Lord, to hear your word. Um, Give us, O Lord, the gift of repentance to turn back to you um, in our lethargy, in our indolence, O Lord. We we need you to do that work, that regenerative work in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, bless the teacher today as as he uh, delves into the minor prophets and bless those who are who are listening. May your word go forth with power and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, dealing with the minor, minor prophets, from, I mean, from, from a larger vantage point, certainly has its challenges. Um, a, few, a few comments should be, should be said about this. The, the minor prophets are, are identified as the minor prophets because of the size of the books that are contained within them. Um, so if you look at a book like Hosea, for example, or, or Joel, or Amos, and compare and contrast those books with Ezekiel, um, uh, uh, Jeremiah, or Isaiah, then you'll see that the size comparison is, is significant. Um, so th- there, there's a kind of sort of basic fact on the ground that the books of Hosea all the way to Malachi, these 12 minor prophets, fit within the space of, of a single scroll. So, they're about, so the minor prophets are about the same size, just in terms of physical um, real estate. They're about the same size as, as Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Ezekiel. So that's, that's one uh, fa- facet or feature of, of their uh, coming together in a single book, the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. Um, but there, there's more, I think, when you begin to sort of dive into the minor prophets where you will see... Uh, that beneath that very sort of basic understanding of, of the technology of the scroll itself that would house these 12 books, that there's more going on underneath the surface where these books tend to be in some kind of conversation the one with the other. And we won't be able to, to delve into that too deeply, um, but I hope today to at least look at three themes within the Minor Prophets that are something or at least three themes that, that make their way through most of the minor prophets all the way from Hosea to Malachi. Now, just for clarity's sake, the minor prophets are individual books and can be treated and should be treated and read as individual books. Joel has its own literary integrity. Hosea is its own literary book. So they stand as individual books and they're worthy to be read and investigated in their individual form. 
But there's also something that takes place on the macro level when you begin to see how these books are in an internal conversation, one with the other, especially with the, th- the three themes that we will we'll talk about a, a little bit today. So we'll, we'll dive right in. The first one within the Minor Prophets is, is the question of the character and the identity of Israel's God. And these, these themes, by the, as I thought about sort of lead, leading up to today's lesson with you all, and the, these themes are, are highly pertinent and relevant um, in our current moment right now that we're facing globally and, and culturally in, in, in our country and in our city. Um, so I wanted you to sort of think about these themes in light of um, our current circumstances as well and how these themes naturally extend into our current moment to cause us to rethink the nature of God and the nature of our own selves in relation to his self-revelation uh, in, in, the, in the Bible. So, so back to this uh, theme of the character of God. When you turn to Hosea chapter 14, uh, the, which is the last uh, chapter in the book of Hosea, a, a book, by the way, whose first position in the Minor Prophets is important because the major themes that are laid out through the rest of the Minor Prophets are introduced in the book of Hosea much like I would argue or at least suggest to you, the book of Romans functions as the first, a kind of interpretive lens for the rest of the Pauline collection that we find um, in the New Testament. So Hosea's um, signal position here is important from an interpretive standpoint. And Hosea, as you know, is a book that's that's riveted with emotion and pathos as the prophet Hosea is called a, a prophet from the north in, in Israel, called to marry either an active prostitute or, or a woman who in time would be unfaithful to him. And, and, and Hosea's whole life and his marriage become what, what's referred to as a prophetic symbolic act. His, 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 it's not just his words that he's speaking to the people um, that he's communicating the prophetic word of the Lord. Hosea is embodying the prophetic word of the Lord in his own person, in, in, in the most intimate uh, areas and aspects of his own personal life, namely um, his family life in his in his marriage to to Gomer. So she goes into prostitution, or or at least into infidelity, and he goes back and he ransoms uh, his his wayward wife back to him as an indication to the people of God that this is God's relationship to you, husband and wife unfaithfulness, and yet the unyielding love of the partner of the husband to pursue the wife um, at all expenses for the sake of the covenant relationship itself for, for eternity. So Hosea lays out these themes before the people of God and makes its way through the first three chapters, giving you this view of Hosea's life and the significance of his life symbolically. And then when you get to chapter four, now we're beginning to see the actual prophetic words of Hosea to the people, and they make their way through with very similar themes, familiar themes if you've read the prophets, themes that you'll find in Jeremiah, themes that you'll find in Isaiah about the dangers of idolatry, the dangers of injustice, the call to love one's neighbor, the call to turn to the Lord with singularity of heart and affection. Those are themes that make their way through Hosea. And then the book ends 
with the last verse in, in chapter 14, verse 9, which I'll suggest to you before I read it, is, is a verse that's giving you a, 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 an interpretive lens. Um, it's giving you a travel pamphlet. It's giving you a map or a guide, if I I'll keep pressing these metaphors, um, for, your, for your journey throughout the Minor Prophets, suggesting to you these are the kinds of questions that you might want to raise and take with you as you're reading through the rest of the prophetic literature. So, so here's, here's the final verse of Hosea chapter 14. Whoever is wise, this is a call to wisdom. This is a call to discerning the, the, the significance of God's revelation to us in the fear of the Lord and in his, in his own self-revealing. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him or her know them. And that language there in Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, of knowing them and knowledge is a significant theme throughout the book of Hosea. My people, says the prophet Hosea, die for a lack of knowledge. They are forgotten. And this is not just mere intellectual assent. This is the kind of, exter- this is the kind of knowledge that moves external to the reality of God and who God is in his own self-revealing that forces us in that external look to turn inward in a recognition of who we are for the sake of the health and the security and the salvation of our own souls. So knowledge is a very intimate thing in the Bible. To know the Lord is to be in intimate communion with him. And here, here the, and, and throughout Hosea, the people are, are excoriated by the prophet because they lack knowledge of the Lord. There's a kind of intentional forgetfulness about the self-revealing character of God that has, he has given to them um, throughout his history with them and through the words of the prophets and, and Moses. So whoever's wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. It's a call to knowledge, to intimate knowledge, to life-saving knowledge. For the ways of the Lord, Jehovah, Adonai, the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright will walk in them. How God reveals himself and what he requires of his people is right, and it's good. I I think of this a great deal as a parent and pray that God gives me a better ability to communicate it to my children. The instruction that God gives to us in his word, the ancient path that he lays out before us and says, walk in this way, is not just a sort of legal system of do's and don'ts, but it's a positive view of human flourishing at its best. The do's and the don'ts, the call to walk in the ancient way is a call to the best that God has on offer for his people. Not just a a sort of self-denial in the face of the things that we really want to do, but a picture of the beautiful and the good, the better way. And that's what the prophet here is saying. The wise person will discern this and will understand it. The discerning person is going to know that this is true, that the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright are going to walk in them. But transgressors, and if you know anything about the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, read Kings, read Chronicles, read Samuel, you recognize that it's a history of transgressors. Right? But transgressors are going to stumble in the way. So here Hosea the prophet calls on the people of God to a standpoint of wisdom and discernment that leads to understanding and knowledge. And what's the understanding and knowledge that the prophet wants them to know? That God and God's own self-revelation 
is true and right, the good, the beautiful, the perfect way. And all of this in the Minor Prophets is rooted um, in God's revelation of his own name to Moses back in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This is, again, a kind of red scarlet thread that makes its way through the Minor Prophets, this hearkening back to God's self-revelation of his own character to Moses on Mount Sinai back in Exodus 34. And I know many of you are familiar with this, but let, let me read it to you one more time. Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, this is, this is God himself giving an exposition of the significance of his name. And to reveal his name is to reveal his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God who's merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's loyal. He's loving. He's faithful. He keeps steadfast love for the thousands. He forgives iniquities and transgressions and sins, but he will by no means clear the guilty, and he visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And when Moses heard the revelation of God's name, he bowed the Bible says, to the earth, and he worshiped. So we see here, back in Hosea chapter 14, that the prophet is calling on the people to a wise and discerning knowledge and understanding of the character of God. And the beauty of the minor prophets, and I'll just throw some verses at you here, but Micah chapter 2, I mean Joel chapter 2, um, Jonah chapters 3 and 4, um, Micah chapter 7, uh, uh, Nahum chapter 1. The, the beauty of the minor prophets is that Hosea's call to a wise and discerning understanding of who God is, the right knowledge of him, is not left in the abstract for you and for me to figure out and to sort by the best resources of our theological imaginations. Because when we do that, at our, even at our best, we tend to project the creature um, human understandings of God and will cast God in our own image rather than vice versa. No, the prophets don't do that. The prophets are allowing God's own self-revelation, the word that he has spoken, which is a word that binds up and heals and also wounds, but it's God's self-revelation of himself back in Exodus 34 where he says, I've told you who I am. I've revealed to you my character." I'm a God who is quick to forgive. My loving kindness, my loyalty to you is a loyalty that extends to the thousandth generation. I am long-suffering. I'm patient. I'm slow to anger. And at the same time, I am a God whose holiness and justice and righteousness cannot overlook sin and iniquity and guilt, but must deal with it as it's presented before me in the life of my people. So what's the portrait that we have that God gives to us that Hosea wants us to discern and understand as we read the rest of the Minor Prophets? And it's this, God is rich in mercy. He is a forbearing self. He is quick in the language of the New Testament to be the father who runs off the porch when he sees his repentant child returning home. He's quick to forgive. It's his default mode. He is merciful. And at the same time, God is severe, not to be trifled with. 
His holiness is his otherness. He is completely distinct from the creature. He is the creator. And in his otherness, there is a mystery, a tremendous mystery that draws us, should draw us into, his, into the fear of who the Lord actually is. So he is merciful and he's severe, which seem to be, to our minds, incompatible the one with the other. But in the very singularity of God's being, his mercy and his severity are properly fitted within his own act and his being. God is one and he is singular. So Hosea is calling us, I mean, to that kind of discernment about the character of God. Who is God? God is the one who's merciful. God is the one who's quick to forgive. We'll turn to this theme in a little bit because it'll be the third theme we look at this morning. But for those who turn to the Lord in repentance, the prophets present a portrait of Israel's God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. The prophets have given us a portrait of God that it is his very character. In other words, he cannot do other than to turn toward those who come to him in repentance with mercy and forgiveness and steadfast love. For the stiff-necked and the proud, for those who give um, God um, the, the hard arm of rejection, those who continue to walk in arrogance against him, who do not take his word and his being seriously, but scoff at it in their actions and in their lips and in their lives, that person as well will know where the prophets reveal to us as the severity of the Lord. So he's merciful and he is severe in the singularity of his being. That theme of the character of God works its way through. And I'll say this, just as a a sort of thought. The character of God is the rock upon which we build the entirety of our lives. Everything rests on the character and the stability of who God has revealed himself to be. He is not capricious. He's not fickle. He operates according to his own being and actions, which is to be merciful and to be severe. And that is the character of God. And we rest our lives, past, present, and future, on the fact that who God says he is, he is fully and truthfully um, in his own being. So that, that's, to my mind, that kind of wrestling in our moment is a significant one. God, am I going to believe that what you say about your mercy and your loving kindness and your patience and your steadfast love, am I going to believe that that's true of your being even when the circumstances around me seem to suggest otherwise? And often the prophets as well as the New Testament force us to a future hope of the actualization of that truth in our lives. Even if I'm not feeling or experiencing that now, I will hold on to it doggedly, unyieldingly for the future reality of God's being because who he was is who he is and who he will be in the singularity of his ways and his purposes. He's merciful and he's severe. Second thing, just to talk quickly about it, is another big theme that makes its way through the minor prophets and that is the theme of the day of the Lord. Um, the day of the Lord, another, another term that's used in the minor prophets is the day of God's visitation. What is the day of the Lord? Joel is a very important book to sort of think through the significance of the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord and when does the day of the Lord take place? I think that's the question that we want to raise. What is the day of the Lord and when does the day of the Lord take place? And first and foremost, the day of the Lord is an understanding of God's divine intervention in human events and affairs. 
It's when God's saving or judging or judging or saving presence breaks in to human affairs and human events in time and in space. That's the day of the Lord. When the Lord, and the Hebrew term is pakad, when he visits his people, when he makes a visitation to his people and brings either his judgment or his salvation, or as we'll read in the prophets, both at the same time in the singularity of his visitation to his people, the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, from a prophetic standpoint, is good news for some people and bad news for other people. And we see, and then the second question then is, when does the day of the Lord take place? And the answer to that actually is, is I think, has to be somewhat elastic. We, we might think of the day of the Lord as singularly the final coming of Jesus at the resurrection of the dead, his second coming. And I would want to say very clearly, that is the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord in time. When God returns in Christ by the Spirit and makes heaven and earth one, we yearn for the day of the Lord to, to, to visit upon us in its final revelation at the end of time. Yes. But the day of the Lord can also appear in time. Um, the locust judgments that Joel talks about in chapter 1 of Joel were something that the people knew about that happened back then. That was the day of the Lord's visitation. Uh, when the Assyrians came and visited the northern kingdom and destroyed the northern kingdom, that was the day of the Lord. When the Babylonians came and they brought God's judgment, that was the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord has an elasticity to it that recognizes that it happens in time, again and again in time. We can't anticipate it, but we know that it can happen again and again, building toward the ultimate and final day of the Lord um, when Jesus returns in power and might. Joel chapter 2 is probably one of the more important um, verses of, in the, and chapters in this. So I, I want to look at it briefly with you. Joel chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And I think there's a sense in which Joel chapter 2 verse 1 is a verse that forces you and me to understand that Joel 2 1 is a verse that lives with us in perpetuity. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It was near back then. It is near now. A day of darkness and gloom. Back in, oh, actually not back. In the next book of Amos, Amos is going to tell the people, do not ask for the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord, in the language right here, is the day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Blackness will spread over the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So here you have the day of the Lord coming dark and gloomy, thick clouds. Um, we see in verse 10 of chapter 2, um, the earth responding to the day of the Lord, the day of his visitation. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. For those of you who are thinking in terms of the New Testament, and you think of the cross of Jesus revealing itself in time, and the, the sky goes black, the earth begins to shake, all of that imagery of the earth responding to the judging presence of the Lord is the day of the Lord imagery of the minor prophets. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is the day of the Lord. So the sun and the moon are darkened, the Lord utters his voice, voice before his armies, 
For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. And here's the haunting question for you and for me this morning about the day of the Lord. For, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure the heat of God's presence when he comes and visits his people with the power of his judgment and his salvation in his hand? I mean, it reminds you back in the book of Exodus when God calls all of the people up to Mount Sinai where God's presence is. He's visiting his people. It's a day of the Lord, a day of visitation. And God calls all of the people up to Mount Sinai to commune with him there. The people come out of their tents. They see the mountain. They see the smoke, the clouds. They see the earth quaking and the lightning. And they look at Moses and they say, we'll stay here. You go ahead and go on up there and let us know how it goes. Who can endure the day of the Lord? And that's the question that leads us into verse 12. Because verse 12 answers for you and for me, who can endure the day of the Lord? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, Rend your hearts, not your garments. It's not a call to mere external religious acts, which often make the the, the actor feel good and superior about themselves and their own religiosity. This happens in Micah 6, with what should we come before the Lord? Rivers of oil, firstborn calves, even our firstborn children. What should we bring to you, Lord? God's not interested in external acts of religiosity that don't go down to the core of our being, that rend our hearts before him. He's wanting us to turn to him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. It's a call to repentance. So, so to, 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 to make the answer so, so tight and brief and pointed, who can endure the day of the Lord? Those whose existence is marked by repentance. They return to the Lord with all their heart, not just once, but they're returning to the Lord with all their hearts again and again and again. Rend to the Lord your God. And here's that Exodus 34 revelation of God's name language being used. Why would we return to the Lord our God? If the heat of his presence is such that the mountains will melt, Michael 1 tells us. If that's who God is in his very being, why, why would I turn to him? Answer, because the one whose judgment is so powerful in its heat to melt mountains is the same one who is, here it is, verse 13, gracious and merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disasters. He pulls back when he sees his people turn to him in repentance. Turn to the Lord your God. So these themes, these three themes, the character of God, the day of the Lord as God's intervention in time, where his own person and presence interacts with human events, um, which lead to a repentant or a calloused heart. Those are the three themes that I want you to take away this morning. And we see them illustrated so pointedly in the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Here, Jonah in chapter 3, after he's had his wild run, and he you know, go, tries to go to Tarshish, and then he gets swallowed by a great fish, and then he gets vomited up on the land. I mean, Jonah is a rip-roaring fun of a book. And then Jonah goes and he gives the shortest sermon in the history of any sermon that's ever been offered. Here's the sermon. Forty days and Nineveh is destroyed. 
Now that's it. That's the sermon. And then, you know, just as I am, some altar call is happening. I mean, the sermon is short. And what happens to, with the word of the Lord and its effect and its power? What, and and what, what's, the, what's in effect the announcement of Jonah? The day of the Lord, the day of the God of Israel is coming near, Joel chapter 2. It's on you, Ninevites. And what do the Ninevites do in response to what God, has, what God has announced through Jonah the prophet. The Ninevites, the wrong people, the, the, the prodigal son at its worst, they do and embody Joel chapter 2. They enter into repentance, as the, as the text in very fun ways, I think, tells us, all the way from the king of Nineveh, of Assyria, down even to the kitty cats and the dogs and the sheep and the cows who are all putting on sackcloth and ashes and engaging in ritual mournings and fastings. And what does God do in the face of their repentance? He does exactly what Joel 2 tells us he's going to do. He relents from bringing disaster upon them. God's very character, his being is such that he draws us to himself. He draws us to himself through the fierceness of his own presence and the power of repentance. I had one of my kids ask me recently, is coronavirus the judgment of the Lord on the world? And I think Christians, and this is William Cooper's influence on me, I think we get into a lot of trouble when we begin to interpret the events of providence in ways that are overly confident. So I, I can't answer that question in the sense of being able to give you a cause that's leading to an effect. That's, that's beyond my pay grade, and I'll leave that in the hands of the Lord. But is this a day of the Lord? Is this a day of God's visitation? Is this a day where we are seeing in such a way the harshness of the physical world, in such a way that it draws us to look long and hard again at God? Is this a day of God's visitation? Because in the day of God's visitation with his people, the end result is either the hardness of the heart or the softening of the heart, in Ezekiel's term, a heart of flesh that draws us back to him because of his character and his ways. It's easy to kind of flatline, frankly, in this period. I've had my own deep struggles with it, uh, just to be candid. Easy to flatline, easy to get lethargic, easy to get overly passive. The minor prophets want you to know who God is. They want you to know God's character. He's merciful and he's severe. And they also want you to know that the day of God's visitation in time is a day that will bring within both judgment and salvation. And the judgment is for those who harden their hearts. And the salvation is for those who turn to him in repentance and recognition of the immeasurable love that God has shown for the world and the death of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm praying for you and for me, for my family and for your families, for you individuals and singles who are out there, that in this moment that God would call us back to the character of his being and that we would rest on him completely and securely. God, give us the gift of repentance to turn to you so that our hearts can be renewed. Now, O Father, seal these things in our hearts and our minds. Let us walk in the truth of your word and let us be risky. Place everything in on the truth of your word that we can count on it, that we can trust in it, and that we can hope in you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.